Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Farmers podcast, get on it, folks. <laughs> you watch it everywhere. You're listening to Stew's Wrestling Podcast. It's time for British Wrestling's Sharpshooter, your host, Stew Palmer. It's episode 86 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast and my guest today is former WCW All Japan Pro Wrestling TNA and WWE star Kwiwi. Kwiwi, known by his real name Alan Funk, was trained at the world famous WCW power plant in the late 90s. We speak about all the guys he was in there with at the time. Everyone that you saw in the late 90s in WCW was in and around the power plant. Some great stories. Also, some great stuff about Louis Farouk's documentary in the late 90s, which was featuring WCW, and he was at the power plant, and it was uh, funny to hear Alan talk about Sarge drilling Louis, which led to him being sick various times. Alan talks about developing the Queeby character, being valeted by Mel Huffman, who went as Paisley when she was one of the Nitro Girls in WCW. And he also talks about his time in all Japan, where he got to take on the great Muta and Kazayashi, legends of the Japanese game. Alan discusses his visits to Ribera Steakhouse in Japan, the famous restaurant where all the wrestlers frequent. They got jackets, they even get photos that are put on the wall. He had some fond memories of his time in Japan. Alan also talks about a very personal thing that happened to him in the ring in Finland. It nearly caused him to die. It was hard for him sharing that, and I appreciate him telling it. Something so close to his heart that happened to him, and that was on a tour to Finland. You can also catch Alan with his podcast on the MWA Podcast Network. It is Get Funked every Thursday at 7pm Eastern Time in the USA. Midnight here in the UK on a Friday. He's had some great guests. Some ex-WCW guys, Molly Holly's been on too. So yeah, without further ado, my guest for episode 86 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast is former WCW, TNA, All Japan Pro Wrestling and WWE talent, Kiwi, known by his real name, Alan Funk. Enjoy. 
My guest, all the way from the good old US of A via Georgia. He's originally from Ohio. It is Alan Funk, the host of MWA Get Funk, his new podcast show, which I want to get into firstly. And former WCW superstar, Kiwi, back in the day. And you went by your real name when you first came in as Alan Funk. How you doing, man? Yeah. Hey, man. Good. Thanks for having me on, buddy. I'd just like to ask about Get Funk and how it's been going, the, the guests you've had on. Yeah, just, yeah, we'll start with that. Yeah, man. Uh, so I, I was, uh, I don't know if there's a guy named Piers Dawson who's been doing podcasts for about a year out of Australia. So uh, he had me on a show one day and uh, he, he liked the interview and uh, he thought I had good charisma. And, you know, the, he, he said he liked everything about, you know, how the podcast went. So, uh, Fast forward to about a year later, he asked me if I he if I wanted to be part of that MWA podcast network, and uh, you know I know a lot of people, so I can usually get some pretty good guests on, which I've already had. Uh, I'm on my seventh show this Thursday. It's live uh, Thursday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern time in the states. So that'd be what? Uh, well, you fight you five hours two, ahead, right? Two, two p.m. Two p.m. No, no, okay. no, I'm going the wrong way. On I twelve twelve a.m. twelve a.m. on a Friday here. That would be. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I started, you know, we got a, uh, I don't know if you know who uh, Kingpin Angel Medina is from, uh, he's I one do. of the original uh, Baldies from ECW. He's doing a show on that podcast as well, MWA Podcast Network, uh, Killing the Business. It's on Friday nights. He's doing pretty well. So you, we got a pretty good crew on that. We got the Dead Presidents, uh, did a lot of work around the States. I think they were overseas quite a bit too. They got a show on there. So uh, the MWA podcast that we're gets, uh, we're going to start making waves here in the future. Absolutely, I know Piers very well. Me, me and Piers connected over twelve months ago, and he's great, great guy. It's great to see that the network's going from strength to strength to you know, great diversity with the shows. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we we got a mixture of shows. So you know, you turn in the Angels, and he just all, you know, it's called killing the business for a reason because they're just talking about you know news that's going on, you know, stuff most people don't want to talk about there's not not many people doing that either so it's quite a niche <laughs> quite a niche it's, thing it's a niche thing well it's too easy to get heat in the wrestling business you know <laughs> and, and, you, and you never know when someone might want to use you you know that's it that's it absolutely so yeah it's cool to hear also um who have you had on previously just for the listeners and viewers to know yeah yeah uh well last week uh Thursday, I had uh, Molly Holly, which is, you know, WWE Hall of Famer. You don't get much bigger than Molly Holly, and she's a great girl. And, uh, you know, I, I was uh, – I've been friends with her for a lot of years. Uh, you know, she uh, – every time – when she came down to Atlanta, she'd stay at my place because uh, we've been good friends from the power plant, you know, for the last 20, 22 years. So, uh, I figured out – I was hoping I wouldn't have any trouble getting her on, but that – you know, that was a good – a good get for a podcast to have Molly Holly on. She just got inducted to the WWE Hall of Fame, and she's she's incredible. And uh, but you might know Chuck Palumbo. He was uh, with Billy. Absolutely. So I had Chuck, Chuck on. Uh, let's see. I had a, a independent worker named R.J. Brewer on. I used to work with Lucha Libre USA. Yep. Great guy. Uh, had Kid Romeo from WCW, first ever tag team uh, cruiserweight champions. They beat Rey Mysterio and Kidman on the last uh, greed pay-per-view to get them belts. So I had Kid Romeo on and uh, I guess I, I, I haven't confirmed my guess for this week, but it's going to be a good one. Absolutely. What, quite the mix of guys there. And uh, yeah, Molly Holly, 
Fantastic her getting inducted recently into the Hall of Fame. And you, you see the other female wrestlers, you know, how much high esteem those those girls hold her in. And also the guys, the guys as well, so well respected, isn't she? Well, she, let me tell you something, man. You, people don't realize how good of a worker she is. She, uh, you know, she trained originally with, with uh, uh, Macho Man's brother, Lanny Poffo. Uh, and then he directed her towards Dean Malenko and she trained under Dean Malenko. So, I mean, you know, Dean Malenko, that name speaks for itself, you know. And uh, she she was she, – she could work with anybody, man. She could work with a guy. It doesn't matter. She's, she's a – I would say even though she's a friend of mine, I'm not trying to toot her horn just because she's my friend, but she's, she's probably the best female worker. She's in the top three of all time for sure. Everything they gave her in WWE as well, you know the superhero gimmick with with Shane Helms, you know, and then when they made the like more more of a straight person, you know, a hard hard woman persona as well. She she just rose to every challenge she was given, and character character development as well. I found as a fan. Oh yeah, well you, you know they say it's uh when you're in a wrestling business they try to put you give you a gimmick or they want to give you a gimmick. It doesn't always work this way. Uh, that you're comfortable doing it's kind of your personality you know and she's such a nice girl you know and, and that's why people liked her because she she's she's one of those people that y you can't not like her you know so and when she when she was a heel doing the heel stuff it made it even more you know it just shows you how talented she is to make people not like her because it's hard to not like her I think you've spoke briefly there about the power plant. I've got to ask you about training there. You know, it was in-house with WCW. You know, WWE weren't doing that, were they? They had, like, developmental territories. You went, yeah, and, yeah. Did it. You went and did it there. How was it being in-house at WCW and being trained by Sarge and the guys there? How tough How tough was it, Alan? Well, first, first let me say, uh, well, WWE's doing that now, so, you know, they, they, yeah. they, you know, they probably figured out it was probably better doing it that way. Because, uh, you know, you got an eye on your guys, you know what's going on, you know what I mean? Uh, well, first, you got to go through a three-day tryout down there. And, and, you know, they, they don't just let anybody walk in the door and, and uh, you know, train down there. Once you make it through the three-day tryout, which is slim and none, uh, you know, Chuck and I, I, everybody I've had on my podcast, we kind of touched base on the power plant. People don't realize how hard that place was. Now, you had, uh, I mean, you had guys that just got out of the military recently or whatever, and they're in shape. They said they would leave. They'd say, screw this. I'd rather go back to six weeks of boot camp or eight weeks of boot camp or whatever it is. They said it was that brutal. Uh, guy, you know, I, my tryout, I broke my nose. Three days, I broke my nose. And I, that was the first day, and I, I couldn't quit, you know. There was 30 guys in my class that started out the first day. Probably within an hour, there was maybe five or six of us left within an hour. That's how bad it is. So, I mean, you, you literally get the shit beat out of you. You get kicked. You get punched. Like I said, I broke my nose. Uh, remember Prince Ikea? Absolutely, absolutely. So he, yeah. he was in there, and that—that's when I were—I got a lot of respect for Mike. That's his real name. Uh, after after that first day, man, he took me in the ring, and you know, you're going down there, and I'm—I'm I'm from a small town, in Ohio, and and I was pretty grounded. I wouldn't—I I would say, and people that know me would say the same thing. I, I'm not arrogant, and I'm not cocky. I'm sometimes confident, but uh. I, I went in there, you know, knowing that I was going to make it, but I what, but I don't, I didn't perceive that as I was being, you know, nothing you guys can do, whatever. But I tell you what, Mike got me in the ring and he beat the shit out of me. Like he tossed me around like a little kid, and I, I got a lot of respect for Mike. You know, some guys would take that the wrong way. Their 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 job down there at that WCW power plant at this time 
was to have 100% failure. They, cause they wanted, if you were going to make it, you had to have heart and you weren't going to, and you weren't going to make it if you didn't. And, uh, I mean, you, we do me, me and a couple other guys tried to calculate how many like squats and pushups and stuff we do down there. Uh, I mean, at least 1,500 squats. In between there, you're doing push-ups. You're running outside in the, in the heat and the humidity of Atlanta, Georgia. When I went through in July, it was like 90-something degrees down here. We're outside with no shirts on, shoes. We're doing push-ups on the blacktop, you know, black crap getting all over your hands. You, you, you try to do crunches in the, in the parking lot, 90 degrees, and the humidity is ridiculous down here. And then you're running back and forth with 250-pound uh, guys on your back down the parking lot, guys puking. Guys barely being able to walk back in the, you know, inside the building afterwards. And uh, on a few occasions, there's been guys, you know, there, there were a lot of fights because of that because, you know, guys just got treated like damn animals. And uh, actually, animals get treated better than that nowadays. So, uh, you know, there, there'd be guys really trying to crawl for the door. These guys would grab you. This one guy, I remember, they, he was trying to crawl for the door. They would grab him by his ankles and drag him back into the in the in the middle of the, where the rings were. And the guy'd be he was crying, man, trying to crawl for the door. I mean, you're talking about a grown man, 250 pounds, trying to crawl out the door, crying because he got beat up that much and he just couldn't take it anymore. And uh, guy's been speared. Uh, Chase Tatum, I don't even remember this guy. He 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 was uh, back in WCW in the day. Uh, his I think he wrestled as Chase Tatum, but he was with the. the uh, uh, that rapper group against Kirk Henning and all those guys back in the day. And he, and he was a big guy, man. He actually speared a guy through the wall, right through the wall into the locker room. You know, and back then, you know, that, that was shit. That's just what they did back then. If you did that now, you'd probably have a lawsuit. But, you know, it, it, it was that brutal. And, and people, when I tell them the story, you know, people don't believe it. They think you're just hyping it up just because you went through it. And uh, I'll tell you, it was the worst thing I ever went through. I couldn't even walk. After the three days, I, I didn't even know how I was going to get to the airport and the plane. I could barely drive my car. I was so sore. I hear so many people saying, oh, that's easy. It's this. It's that you saying about, you know, guys that have come out of American football, come out of, you know, the army, out of the forces, and they couldn't, yeah, cope, oh, yeah. and they couldn't cope with it as much as it is the physical side. It was the mental yeah. side. It's the mental side as well, isn't it, Alan? Well, I mean, first off, if you're, if you're not physically ready to do that three-day trial when they had it, it honestly, uh, it didn't matter how much heart you had. You, you probably weren't. Your body would have just shut down. Because uh, I literally, when I went back to the hotel, and I'm not making this up, I would roll out of bed and fall on the floor and crawl to the bathroom. I couldn't even move my legs. I was cramping up so bad. I was, I was taking, you know, like a leave. I was eating bananas. I'm, I'm trying to do everything I could just to try to get back to that school. And then, you know, when I got there, it kind of just. I'm pretty tough mentally, so uh, my, my brain just shut off and said, look, man, you got to do it. Just get your butt in there and let's get it done, man, you know, no matter how bad it was. And it, it was terrible. And uh, I literally, I remember the fir after the first day, the second morning, when I rolled out of bed and was calling the bathroom, I tied a towel onto the doorknob of the bathroom just to lower myself on the toilet just to go to the bathroom. And then I had to grab the towel and pull myself back up. That's how bad it was. Fucking hell. You don't <laughs> – I mean – uh, we we saw it on TV. Uh, Louis Ferru, who's like an investigator. Oh yeah, I was going to bring him up. Yeah, investig Louis. investigative journalist, obviously well known worldwide now. But I remember at the yeah, time yeah. when that episode dropped, and they were drilling him hard, and he didn't. Yeah, know I was in that video. Uh, were you? Right. Okay. You see um, me a lot in that. Uh, if you yeah, watch I, it again. Just, I'll have to need to watch it again. But yeah, yeah. We and you know what happened to him? He ended up puking. I mean, now Louis, let's let's be honest. He wasn't a physical specimen. No. no. Uh, 
But, you know, Sarge, he kind of hit a nerve on Sarge because if you remember that video, he, he, he was at, uh, I think, the arena up in Knoxville or something when he had a Nitro or something there. So Sarge used to take the rings to the, you know, he got paid extra to take the rings and stuff. So, you know, he's doing it because Sarge is a hardworking dude, you know. So uh, he, uh, Louis approached Sarge and was asking him stuff. And Sarge really ain't the kind of guy you want to, like, pull, pull some strings on, you know what I mean? Because he, he just doesn't play. And uh, kind of he kind of hit a nerve with Sarge, and you know Sarge's like, all right, you want to you want to see how it is? Come down to the power plant. That's when he invited him down to the power plant. So Louis come down to the power plant, and I'm pretty sure Louis probably regretted that. Unbelievable watching that back, you know. He, he actually puked two or three times. <laughs> I am not surprised. They should have shown that. They should have shown that to really depict. Well, they showed him puking oh, once, I think, but yeah. he puked way more than yeah. once. I can, right. I can guarantee that. Oh, my that. days. Oh, my days. I think now would be a great way of progressing to you as the character and stuff like that and getting on TV. How long was that coming from the power plant and then being on television? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I did my tryout in July of 98 at the power plant uh i i so in october you know a couple months later i i moved me and my fiance at the time moved down to atlanta uh i was training there a little bit so this was october when i started training because they invited me back because i was the only one that made it through the tryout uh then uh let's see september uh kid roman and i had our first match we'd already they'd already uh they closed up the old power plant that where i came up in and i did my three-day tryout they moved to uh, like where the corporate offices were, and uh, it was in Smyrna, Georgia. And uh, so th they had a man. They had a, I don't know if you ever seen the pictures of the new power plant they had at the end. Uh, they had four rings set up, an incredible weight room. You know, they had upstairs. They had cardio stuff. They had great locker rooms for the for the men and women. Uh, it, I mean, it was a top of the line facility. So we I remember we were in there one day, and this was around September. Kevin Nash walks in because. Uh, Kid Romeo had been talking to him about, you know, getting on a Saturday night. And uh, me and uh, Sam, which is Kid Romeo, we used to uh, work a lot together. We did some indies and stuff while we're trained at the power plant, you know, to bet, you know, to get better. And uh, and he loved working with me. I love working with him because, you know, we, we knew what each other did. He knew he knew he could trust me. We both looked good body-wise. So he actually, he actually is the one to help me get on TV quicker than all the other guys because he already had it set up with Kevin Nash. And, you know, thank God he chose me. That way we got, you know, we got to do a match in Roanoke, Virginia. And that's when they did the Saturday night tapings on every other Wednesday. So if you were on TV for two Saturdays, you had to do two matches or two segments or whatever they had you doing. So we actually ended up wrestling two matches that night. And uh, he went over the first match. I went over the second match. And that's kind of how uh, him and I started feuding in WCW on the Saturday night show. It was pretty, was it still pretty well run up to that point, WCW? We heard about everything towards, you know, the end there, like the 2000, 2001. How was it for you working there at that time early on? Could you see, could well, you foresee you, that it was in any trouble? Well, I, to be honest with you, man, I was so, all the guys in the power plant, man, we, we got treated a little different than the rest of the talent because they considered us still to be training. You know, even though we're getting on TV, they, you know, they wanted us to come to power play after we got off the road. And uh, after a while, it did end. But uh, we, we were so – I think most of the guys would probably say the same thing. We, we were wrapped up in trying to get out of the power plant and work hard that we – honestly, myself, I can say this for sure, I, I really wasn't looking at the company as a whole, how it was being run. I just know I was getting on TV, and I know I'm getting a chance to do, you know, something that I wanted to do all my life. So I, I, I honestly, I really wasn't paying attention to all the 
you know, until we started getting on TV regular on Nitro, and you know, then I became friends with you know DDP Page and uh, and uh, Kevin Nash, and I traveled with some of these guys a little bit. Then I started noticing, you know, kind of the stuff. But then, you know, you don't have you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out once once we got in there that they really didn't have a direction, especially with me. You know, they they just throw me on TV sometimes. Just like for example, the last Green Pay Per View, I wasn't even booked on it. I was just there because I was down in Florida watching some of my buddies that play pro baseball and uh, it's spring training. And, uh, I, you know, I was going to go to the show anyway, and I was booked on the nitro. And, uh, so while I'm at the arena, they're like, Hey, we're going to put you in the first match. I'm not even booked on the show. So they, they didn't know what they were doing. You know, would you have rather been better prepared in that? Or were you just used to how, how that was, how it was run? At that point, oh, you mean better prepare for the match when they threw me in that you, match? You know, like obviously, what you, you want to know who you're facing, but things change, plans change. We hear about all this in a backstage capacity. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. It, no, I, I, uh, me, I wrestled uh, Easy Money. I don't know if you ever saw that match, Jason Jett, Easy Money, on the last Green Pay. It was, it, in my opinion, it was one of the better matches on that card. Not just because we were involved in it, but it, I mean, we we kicked off the show, man. We did some good, incredible stuff in that, and. uh Man, that was a great match. That was one of my favorite WCW matches for just being thrown together. But me and Jason had wrestled on some uh, – actually, we did a couple of WCW house shows together uh, when he started, and then, you know, we wrestled a little bit. And uh, so, I mean, we you know, we went over the stuff at the arena and stuff. So it, we, we had a great match, and it was comfortable, and I, we were prepared for that match. How is it going out to an arena, a sold-out arena? How, how are you – you know, mentally going going into the matches and coming out. How did you feel? How was your yeah, psyche? Yeah, I tell you what, it's it's it. I don't really get nervous a lot of times, but you, you actually get a little nervous because you know, and especially with the power plant guys, they would always tell us all the time, "Listen, you guys screw up, you're fired." You know, so you had that extra burden on your back, thinking, "God, man, I, I got to have the best match of my career. I'm going to get fired," and that's just the way it was. I don't know if they said that for motivation for us or they actually meant it, but I believe they actually meant it because uh, Paul Orndorff usually didn't play any games. He, he was, he'd tell us that all the time, you know, made us a little nervous. Uh, but other than that, you know, honestly, I don't know how everybody else feels. Until you really do that several times, you're kind, you kind of got blinders on. When I'm walking out of the arena, I know there's, you know, 20,000 fans or whatever there, and you really don't see them all. You're kind of concentrating. You're running the match through your head. You know, at least for me, I, I can't speak for everybody. But you know, when I, I walk out to the arena, man, I'm I'm thinking, man, this you know, this is awesome. It's always what I want to do. You know, I got to make sure I don't screw the match up. I got to, you know, I got everything on my mind. So I'm really not. It's kind of weird, man. You it goes by so fast. It seems like you walk out there in the match, even if you have a 15 minute match, it seems like five minutes. But uh, by the time I, I wrestled in all Japan against the great Muda one night, it was a main event match. So, I mean, if anybody knows anything about wrestling, you know Muda. He's, he is revered in Japan. He's, he's basically a god. Like, that guy probably can't walk down the street. He's, you know, that's how much people respect that guy. And uh, I started, by then in my career, I started, you know, I, I would tell myself, sink it all in, man. Go out there and really look at stuff and, and take it all in, you know. And uh, until then, when I started wrestling in Japan – that's when I really started focusing on, you know, having fun and really, really soaking everything up, you know. But it, it takes a while to do that. I'll get into all Japan and your run there because some bits I want to ask. But also, I'd be remiss not to ask about developing the Kiwi character and obviously yeah. the vibrancy, the vibrancy, the attire you wore, the character. How, how was it developing that character and putting all that stuff together, man? 
Well, so Mike Sanders and myself, which uh, Mike Sanders in the Natural Born Thrillers, uh, we started doing a gimmick. Uh, we come up with a double A team because I'm angry Allen. He's above average. So we started doing that on WCW Saturday nights and stuff. So my hair, I had it spiked up and it started getting longer and longer and I wouldn't cut it. And I mean, I, I was having kind of pretty thin hairline, but you know, my hair was visibly noticeable when, when I walked out and it was something I did just because I wanted to be different. Uh, so then, uh, one day me and Mike were walking through an airport, I believe it was in West Virginia and, uh, Terry Taylor and, uh, Vince Russo was sitting there and we walked up to him. Of course, we were going to say hi. We didn't want to snub him, you know, cause the, the heat and the wrestling business. So, you know, we walk up and say, Hey to him and they're sitting there looking at me like, what in the hell is up your hair? Like you actually wear that shit like that? You know? And I'm like, you know, he, you know, I'm trying to be different, man. What do you, and then, and then, so they were talking for a minute. Me and Mike, they were talking. He's like, Hey, listen. We got an idea for you. We, you know, let, let's talk at the next show we're at, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I got on my mind. So, so we go to the next show. Uh, I, I was talking to Vince, and uh, he's like, listen, this is what I want to do. He told me to watch videos of a character on Saturday Night Live. I think it was called The Mango. It was uh, Chris Kattan. He was that little guy who used to do some kind of arrogant, uh, you know, character kind of like, uh, the, you know, Queewee was. But he had a, and I don't remember this character on Saturday Night Live until I started, I, I went and bought a tape and, uh, you know, the old VCR tapes. <laughs> and I started watching these matches or uh, these Saturday Night Lives on this tape. And then he had a, uh, they called, uh, David Spade, I believe, was called uh, Kiwi, like K-I-W-I. So they originally started, they, he wanted me to pattern myself after that character. And uh, so I came up with kind of the pink and I kind of came up with my hair like that just because it was crazy and it was weird. And, you know, I started putting uh, glitter in my hair and stuff. And then it started looking pretty cool. You know, we were kind of evolving the character a little bit. And then uh, Saturday Night Live actually got a hold of WCW and said they were going to sue him for the Kiwi name because we were using the name. And they, they, they thought it was, you know, off of that. So they changed it to Kiwi, which, I mean, in my opinion, is probably the dumbest name in wrestling history. But, you know, because it's, Nobody ever says it right. Everybody, else, even my friends, will say like, "Hey, Kiwi." I'm like, no. I said, Are "You morons! It's Kiwi." I mean, <laughs> best friends and people are still calling me Kiwi. Yeah. How do you expect fans to call you Kiwi when your damn best friends can't even remember the name? You know. So, and, and you know, I had the angry Allen off of uh, yeah. the Kiwi character, which yeah. you know, Mike today I would always ask him to say, you know, angry Allen or or you know, Bobby Heenan or Stevie, uh, uh, Steve what. Stevie Ray from, uh, he used to commentate and stuff. Yeah. And uh, Mark Madden, you know, because we talked to these guys before the matches, and they'd ask us if there's anything we wanted to say or, you know, wanted them to say. So, you know, the announcing team did as well as they could, but, you know, the, the and that was part of the WCW being WCW. Some, sometimes the announcers, when, when, like, if I had a company and I got these young guys coming out here, I would have my announcers keeping 150% focus on that match what these guys are doing and try to put them over, you know, they'd be talking about the main event and the next pay-per-view two weeks away during our matches, which I don't know if you remember that, but they did that all the time. And that, that was kind of frustrating. You know, you're out there busting your ass for this company that Paul Wonder is telling you, you don't have a good match. You're going to get fired. And the announcers aren't even talking about the match. I mean, to me, that's, 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 that's one thing WWE does bet did or does way better than WCW was you actually concentrated on in ring when they're wrestling and not talk about something that happened two weeks ago or something that's going to happen in two weeks. So that, that was kind of frustrating, you know? I can only imagine like, you know, also going back to that, at least you knew saying, oh, people couldn't get the name right. How it was a distinctive, it's a distinctive name, Kiwi. 
That's what I yeah. wanted to say. At least, you know, it hadn't been done before, so, you know. It, yeah, yeah, but it, nobody could ever get it, man. It just, <laughs> it, I don't know. It's just one of them things. Like, yeah. people even now, they'll, they'll – uh, I'll, po- I'll post a video where I'll post a picture of a podcast or something with K-W-E-E-W-E-E, and then people will type, you know, in the comments, K-I-W-I-K-E-E, look, it's Kiwi. And I'm like, it's incredible how people just don't get it. How was it having Charmel? Obviously, she was known as Paisley, Charmel Huffman, yeah. as, as your valet, because I remember, I remember it very well when she used to come out with you. How, how was that? doing the stuff with Charmel. Well, see, it, let me go time. back to the WCW No Direction. Uh, first, they give me they, – they had a couple different women with me. Uh, I don't know if you remember BB from WWE. She was uh, – the Dudleys put her through the table. She was yeah. Barbara Bush. Absolutely. The, uh, she wore the medic gimmick and stuff. Uh, so she was my very first valet. Her uh, Papaya was – they called her Papaya. So she was on a couple of the vignettes we shot where she's ironing clothes when we're in the wardrobe area. And that's when Paisley – you know, I, I was this character Queewee was supposed to be like it would mesmerize people. Like you'd see me and see all. Like I don't know what it was about this guy, but like I'm falling in love with the guy for the women. And then the guys would just be mesmerized, like, oh man, it's the Queewee, you know. And uh, so that, they had Charmel started fall for me. So then, uh, but they gave me one other lady that Mark Madden brought in from Pittsburgh. She was a damn stripper at a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> and she just had big boobs. I mean, she wasn't ugly or nothing, but she didn't have much of a body other than she had freaking Dolly Parton boobs, you know what I mean? So she come out in this little tight pink dress. I, I remember I picked her up. She was only with me a week, maybe two. And I picked her up and kissed her all the way to the ring. I got major heat with my wife over that. And uh, she was only there for like a week or two. So, And then that's when they started bringing Paisley in, which I'm glad to – I wish I would have had Paisley from the get-go because she was amazing on the mic. And – to be honest with you, I didn't really even want to do this Queeby character because I wasn't comfortable. I'm not homophobic by no, any means. No, no, but, but the no. But char- the character was kind of flamboyant, and and people thought, you know, I was gay. People still think I'm gay. And, you know, guys ask me all the time if I'm gay. And, you know, but, you know, I joke around with my friends and stuff, but, you know, no, I'm not gay. I don't have anything against gay people. But, you know, it, it's just one of them characters where, you know, I didn't think I was that good at doing it, and they thought I was great at it. So, I mean, I don't know. But, uh, you know, when they brought Paisley in, she'd talk a little bit, which I was really comfortable with because she's great on the mic. She's got a great voice, and she knows how to carry herself because she's had a little more experience than I did, you know, on TV, obviously, because she was there way before I got there. Uh, And, uh, you know, we got along really good, man, her and I. Uh, And then uh, once she started falling in love with me in the wardrobe area, that, that got heat with Prince Ikea because she was with the artist known formerly known as Prince Ikea. So him and I had a couple good matches, man, and I was really excited to work a program with him because, like I said before, from the power plant, I had a lot of respect for this guy, and I knew he was a real deal. And uh, he's a great worker. Uh, so we, we, had a, we had a couple good matches. They had me beat him on Nitro. I'm sure nobody remembers that. But it was actually in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm from originally in Ohio, and, you know, all my family was there. So it was kind of a special moment for me getting to beat Prince I.K. on a nitro with all my family there. So, uh, you know, I, I, then, then I'm thinking, you know, you know, th- this is for real. They're letting me win a match on Nitro against somebody that has been the Cruiserweight champion. You know, so I'm thinking, you know, th- things are going pretty good right now. But, you know, hindsight, they really weren't. They didn't really know what they were doing. How were you dealing with Eric Bischoff? You said about Vince Russo as well previously. How were how you yeah, dealing yeah. with Bischoff and Russo at that time? What? I tell you what, man, I don't have anything bad to say about either one of them, and I'm the type of guy that would if I did. Uh, 
they both treated me good, man. They they were uh, they they showed me respect. They they talked to me. They didn't treat me like I was beneath them. Uh, and I don't know if you remember when uh, we we started off on the uh, R and B security. Yeah, R Russo and uh, Bischoff security, and uh, a lot of the guys from the power plant, which is me, Mike Sanders. I think Mark Jindrak was in there, and a couple other guys that weren't really on TV. I think Sonny Siaki might even have been in that. And uh, we'd come out with them. We'd walk with them. We had yellow R&B security shirts on. And that's how we got our first little, you know, deal, like on main TV before I started doing the Kiwi. Uh, we, you know, which was good. Anytime you get TV time is good, you know, even though you're not really a character. Nobody knew who you were. But, uh, yeah, those guys treated me awesome. And then I don't know if you remember towards the end when, when uh, Bischoff actually took over WCW. He was in the back. He was running the whole show for – you know, several weeks. I'm not, I don't really know the time frame, but, uh, and he was there and he was treating me ridiculous. I mean, he, uh, Janie Engel, which was a lawyer for WCW would come to the locker room every week and come and get me and say, Hey, Mr. Bischoff wants to talk with you. And I'm like, you know, the first time she did that, I'm thinking, Oh shit, am I getting fired or what's going on? Cause you know, they never come to me and say, Hey, Bischoff wants to talk to you, you know? So I go in the office, talk, sit down with Eric and man, Eric's putting me over like a million dollars. He's telling me I'm going to be, you know, one of his next big guys. I'm going to make a lot of money in his business. And, you know, I'm fired up, man. I'm sitting here going, hell yeah, let's do this shit. You know, and he's like, he wanted me to do a job for uh, Rick Steiner that night. And uh, I, 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 you know, I put Rick Steiner over real hard. And because I guess people thought Rick was getting a little soft. So they wanted to put him over. And uh, so I put him over and uh, Eric came backstage and talked to me afterwards and said that was exactly what he wanted. And, you know, he, you know, he's glad that I, that, uh, I'm filling the shoes that he wants me to fill. So, uh, then he'd call me the, the next week and same thing, Jane, come and get me, have a meeting with me saying, you know, he's happy with what I'm doing. Just keep doing it. And, you know, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to be one of his next big guys, you know? So, you know, I'm thinking, shit, this is, this is unbelievable. You know, this is all everything I work for. Uh, so, you know, and then of course they come in there one day right out from underneath them and, you know, bought, Vince bought the company. So, I'm not really sure what happened there, but I, I mean, I got a couple uh, ideas, you know, but after that, you know, then everything went downhill for all the, most of the power plant guys. In your, in your opinion, I know everyone had the, had the platform. There was uh, the talent was all on TV and stuff, but which guys were in your opinion were underrated at the time that deserved more TV time, maybe. The, the guys that deserve more TV time? Yeah, maybe some guys that, you know, you felt were, like, really, really good but just didn't get, you know, get the exposure well, that they should have got, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, there was probably a couple, myself included. Uh, but, you know, at that time, if you remember, man, they had, uh, like, all the guys I was in the power plant with. You had uh, the Natural Born Thrillers, which is Mike Sanders, Mark Jindrak, Chuck Palumbo, uh, Sean Stasiak, Sean O'Hare, John Huger, uh, Rick Cornell, which was Reno. Uh, I don't know if I'm missing anybody or not, but uh, I mean, if you remember, those guys were like on every other damn segment. They come out of the ring, they shot vignettes backstage the whole show. They were they were if there was ten segments on Nitro, they had to been at least five or six of them. I would say at least, you know, whether whether they were just little vignettes they pre-taped or they were actually live in the ring, and and then you know a lot of times those guys would have matches, so they're in five six segments of of the damn Nitro, which I mean, you're getting incredible TV time, which you know, which I was happy for him, yeah. But, uh, you know, the, I, I would have liked to have done more. Uh, uh, Elix Skipper, they gave him a lot of air time. Uh, he was with Team Canada and stuff, and he was a good buddy of mine from the power plant. Uh, you know, he was a cruiserweight champion as well. 
but they just, you know, uh, I was supposed to win the career. I, I don't know if you remember this. We were actually in England. I, I don't, can't remember what city we're in, maybe Birmingham. I can't remember. But I, we did a match with the cruiserweights. Uh, we had uh, Ray Mysterio, Kidman, Lash LaRue, Elix Skipper, Chavo Guerrero, me, and there may have been somebody else, but I can't remember. Uh, so I go over there. They tell me backstage, Fit Finley's my agent. He's telling me, you know, him and Honor tell me, look, you're going to win this match. Uh, then they wanted Ming to come out because I was, we were kind of, you know, me and Ming were kind of a tag team there for a minute. Uh, so Ming come out, hoisted me on his shoulders after I won the match. I mean, I, I just beat Kidman, Mysterio, you know, Chavo Guerrero Jr. I beat all these guys, you know, I'm thinking shit. And they tell me I'm going to win the next pay-per-view in Milwaukee against Mike Sanders. They tell me I'm going to win the belt, the cruiserweight belt. So, you know, I'm excited, man. I'm like, hey, shit, everything's working out just the way it's supposed to, you know. So then, uh, I don't know if you remember that match with uh, Mike Sanders. They actually changed their mind the day of the show, and they kept the belt on Mike. We, I mean, we still had a good match. I wasn't the type of guy that, you know, was like, and I wasn't in a position to bitch about shit like that. You know what I mean? So I just kept my mouth shut and did whatever they said. And, uh, you know, it, it, never, it never got me anywhere, really. But uh, looking back on it, I kind of wish I would have said something, you know. But, you know, that's just that goes back to the WCW not having any direction. How was life on the road for you in WCW? Were you cool with traveling, or did you find it tough traveling, traveling the roads? No, no, I, I was good with traveling. My my uh, ex-wife wasn't too good with it. Uh, you know, when we moved to Atlanta, you know, I told her, I said, this is what I want to do. If you don't want to be a part of it, you know, I got to I gotta put all my time and effort in this. You know, it's going to be rough on the marriage. Uh, so if it's something you want to do with me, then, you know, we'll get married and we'll do it. And she was all in, you know. But once I started traveling, you know, she kind of started changing her mind a little bit, which is understandable. Uh, you know, I was gone quite a bit. Sometimes we'd go up and do uh, shows for WCW up in uh, uh, Tennessee. We'd do, you know, four or five shows up there. I'm gone Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. You know, I'd be back home Thursday, Friday, you know, sometimes Thursday I'd get home for a day, and uh, which I, I know it's tough, but, you know, that's just the way it was. I, there was nothing else I could do, you know. So uh, I like traveling. The, it was kind of rough on all us power plant guys because uh, w they didn't pay for none of our hotels. They didn't pay for none of our rental cars. And, and to be honest with you, man, we weren't making a lot of money. I remember my first contract with WCW, I was getting uh, $500 a week. Uh, so, you know, you're $500 a week. You're on the road four or five days. You're, you got to buy a – you got to get a rental car for the whole time which isn't, you know, it's not 50 bucks. You know, you got to pay that a day at least for a rental car. And then you got to get a hotel room. You know, you want to stay in a nice hotel room, uh, you know, you're going to pay. So all of us would sleep, you know, seven deep in a hotel room, get fold out cots. And, you know, there'd be two of us in each bed and uh, just to save money because we weren't making a lot of money. So, uh, you know, we'd all share, we'd crunch into a rent a car, you know, five, six, seven deep, you know, stop at the hotel, sleep five, six, seven deep, save money. And then, uh, you know, that's just the way it was. Uh, but to me, that was part of the – it was kind of part of the fun, you know, because you, you build up friendships with these guys. And uh, that part of the road was fun, you know. It, you know, it was rough sometimes, but it, it was fun. I wouldn't take it back. Some, some people think the glamour, don't they? You know, the glamour when you get – when you're working for the big companies, especially years yeah, ago. Yeah. But, yeah, there, there's the reality right there, having to really, you know, crunch, crunch your paycheck. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, well, a, lot they, of us, a lot of us thought it was glamour. You know, you're on the big, you're on the big money. Everyone was on the big money living life. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, everybody I see nowadays, like, you know, I, I uh, 
if you like a lot of these guys, they end up working real jobs after WCW because you didn't make the kind of money where you can just quit working the rest of your life, you know. And a lot of the guys were young too, you know. When you know when I quit working with shit with them, it was in two thousand three or or no two thousand two or whatever, something like that. When we got released from WWE, uh, I mean, I'm still a young guy, you know. I'm in my thirties. I, I can't just quit working because I never made, you know, I never made a million dollars a year. I couldn't just quit. So you know, I've had, you know, I got a CDL. I drive a truck uh a semi truck you know people see me i used to drive a, a flatbed uh car hauler for mike sanders dad because his dad owned a tow truck company you know people would actually recognize me and say damn you what are you doing driving a tow truck or something you know like you're a millionaire you know they you know they don't get it you you can't explain it to them you know you just say listen you know i just i got some free time my buddy owns a company i'm just working you know because they, they don't get it you spoke there about WWE. You were signed, but you never wrestled there. But could you talk to us a bit more about that? About well, yeah, yeah. I, I wrestled with WWE. I just never done TV for WWE. I, I did local television for WWE down in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so they, I get a call from Johnny Ace, which Johnny Laurinaitis, uh, people remember him. He was on uh, Raw and stuff there for a while. Uh so he calls me up, and I'm actually driving a tow truck for Mike Sanders' dad. Him and I were driving that day and because uh, we didn't really know what was going on. After they bought the company, you know, they just told us, you know, we picked up your contracts. Uh, just go home. We'll be getting in touch with you to, to see, what we're, see what direction we're going to go, which I, I, I know they had a direction. They didn't have a direction for us being on TV at all, I believe. Uh, they picked our contracts up basically so we could go up to HWA in Cincinnati, which Les Thatcher was running that. And then Danny Davis was running the OVW in Louisville, Kentucky. So they, they picked all of us up. We go up there, we wrestle with, uh, and they had uh, guys in Cincinnati. They had guys from the Memphis territory, which was WWE developmental talent. They just moved it down to Cincinnati and Louisville. They, they stopped the Memphis territory. So in that group, you had uh, Umaga, which was, you know, a top star in WWE. Uh, which is, you know, which is in the, the Samoan dynasty. Uh, his brother, Matt Inouye, which uh, was uh, Rosie, the superhero Rosie. Uh, you had Steve Bradley. You had, uh, uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank on some of these guys. Uh, you, you had a guy that was with, uh, what was his name? He was with Murdoch. They were a tag team in WWE. Lance Cade. Uh, Lance Cade, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, man, I can't remember his name. And he passed away, so I'm sorry I forgot his name. So Lance was there in Memphis. They had a, they, all the guys that they had from Memphis end up becoming on WWE TV. You know, the, so basically what we did was we went down there, trade with these guys, did independent shows with them with, Lat, with Les Thatcher. Uh, you know, we had shows like every Friday, Saturday nights. We trained all week at, the, at Les's school. So it was almost like we were back at the power plant. You know, we had to go down there. We're like, after we get off TV, all those power plant guys was like, man, this is a bunch of horse shit. Now we're going down here. We're, we're still – basically in the power plant because we're at a we got to go to the school every morning at eight nine o'clock in the morning stay to a little four o'clock in the afternoon get treated like crab act like we don't know what we're doing which you know we had a lot to learn still don't get me wrong because you can always learn in wrestling but you know we were on tv and now we're back to square one so it did frustrate a lot of the power plant guys uh you know then we go down on sundays we go down to louisville kentucky they did a local tv show down there in louisville with John Cena, Randy Orton, Batista, you had the Bastion Twins, you had Rico, which was Chuck and Billy. Uh, you had all these guys down there, and there's more. I just can't remember all of them. And they, they all actually were on WWE. 
well, we had uh, Charlie Haas and Russ Haas, which was from the Memphis area. Uh, so, you know, we're wrestling all these guys. and nothing against the guys. We all got along great, and they were great guys. But th- there was a noticeable difference on how they got treated and how the WCW power plant guys got treated. Uh, I would say, I'm not speaking for anybody else, but I would say, in my opinion, looking back on the whole situation, which I thought at the time, but of course I wasn't going to say anything because I'm just, yeah, I'm doing what I'm told. You know, I'm, I'm still nobody. Uh, so, you know, they, they basically had us go down there and train these guys, help train these guys, get them ready for TV, and then they got rid of us two weeks before Christmas. And they got rid of most of us. Now, a couple of them stayed, but they didn't do anything with them. They, you know, the whole, you know, WCW invasion angle, they, they dropped the ball with that thing. It could have been so much better than what it was. It was just, you know, it was just bad. It was the guarantee contracts, wasn't it? For the top guys that still had their contracts in place, they didn't need to work. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Some, I mean, of course, we weren't at that level yet. You know, no, we didn't have no. nothing guaranteed. Our contracts was you, you could fire us today and we get paid 90 days. That, that was our contract. So after they released us, we got, at least we got paid 90 days, you know. And then I, that's when I started wrestling overseas. I was wrestling in Australia. I was wrestling with uh, All Japan in the uh, WWA. Uh, so, you know, I, w- I was still getting paid from WWE, and they didn't have a no-compete clause in my contract, so I could still work, you know, and, and, and make good money. That's cool, man. That's cool. I want to now segue into your time in all Japan. Now, I was reading, obviously, okay. and, you, and you alluded to Great Muter and getting in the ring with the legend. You, you got in there with Kaz Hayashi as well, and, and you went on to team with Elix Skipper, obviously. You spoke about Elix and Mike Awesome. How was oh, yep. it? How was it getting to Japan, Alan? And, you know, the culture there, uh, everyone I know who's been to Japan lives Japan. Uh, so, no, let yeah, me just... tell you something, man. The, the culture in Japan, we'll start off with that. Yeah. That, that's what hooked me in Japan. You know, the first time we go to dinner, you, you, you learn new stuff every day over there. So, you know, I, I'm American, first time I've ever been to Japan. So when you go to dinner, the thing I like about the Japanese culture is, man, you can order food and drinks or whatever you want to order, but nobody at that table will touch anything until everybody gets a drink. Like, if they bring your drinks out first, there's nobody at that table even thinking about drinking their drink until everybody gets a drink. And then, you know, you come pie, and then everybody drinks. Same with food. Nobody eats nothing until everybody gets their food, which I, I love that. And the, another part of that culture is everything over there means something. You could have a job. You know, you could, have a, you could be a wrestler. You could, be, uh, you could work at Kentucky Fried Chicken there. Uh, you know, you, you can work in a drugstore, 7-Eleven. They got them on every street corner. Every job means something. Nobody degrades anybody over there for being, you know, having a less paying job than the other guy. That, that's what I love about that culture, man. Every, everybody means something over there. But uh, which brings me to wrestling Muda, Kawada, which Kawada's, uh, that dude's a killer, and he's a, he's a Japanese legend, man. So I, I wrestled, I got to wrestle Kojima. He's the, the new, at that time, he was the, the most over baby face in Japan, man. He was a rising up and coming star, and he was everybody knew who Kojima was. I mean, I got to wrestle all these guys. I wrestled Kaz Hayashi. He was actually in the office in all Japan at that time because of Muda. Uh, him and Muda were good buddies from you know from WCW. I wrestled Kaz, you know, in WCW, so I was familiar with him. So uh, there was another guy that was always on those tours, Jerry Toot. He was the wall in WCW. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrestled as. Uh, Let's see, Mike, Mike Awesome's name was uh, – what was his name over there? Oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, one, of them, one of their names were gigant, like Gigantes, Giantes, I think it was. I think that might have been Jerry. Well, Jerry's the one that actually got me over in all Japan because, you know, I, I was really good friends with Jerry. 
so he called me up. You know, I, I always talk to him every day pretty much. So uh, we we're talking about all Japan because he's like, I said, dude, I'd love to come over there, man. Just, you know, see what you can do. So he talked to Kaz and Muda, and, you know, they knew me from WCW. So they're like, yeah. And at this time, I was doing a, a Funkster gimmick, which I had long hair. I let my hair keep growing long. It was down to my shoulders. I had a, I had a, you know, a Hulk Hogan mustache, the handlebar mustache. I dyed blonde, so it looked better. Uh, and I was doing that character, which was fun, but I, I didn't really want to do it. But again, you know, I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to get a paycheck. You know, you, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. You know, so I always get not forced into these characters, but it's either I do it and get paid, or I sit at home and don't get paid. So you know, it, it, it's not too hard to weigh which option you want. You know. So I go over there at All Japan Wrestling, uh, wrestling with uh, which one of the guys they had. They had uh, the Amazing Red. Uh, he was kind of independent worker, and uh, he he later on went on to do some TNA stuff. I can't remember. Maybe we already did a TNA together. So he uh, he was called uh, Red Mysterio, and he wore a Ray Mysterio mask. They had him doing like a Ray Mysterio gimmick. They had me doing a Hulk Hogan gimmick, and then they had Sean Hernandez, which is in TNA Impact. Uh, Doing the, he was doing stuff with Conan and stuff. I don't remember what he's even doing now. But he was doing a Kurt Angle gimmick. He had the singling on in the USA, you know, singling, and he'd come out with – so we all pretty much – we were doing three-man tags as a gimmick tag team over there, which, you know, which was – it wasn't what I wanted to do, but it was cool because I got to wrestle with these guys that were unbelievable. You know, all their talent over there was great, even the old guys. You know, and everybody treats you over there like you belong there. It ain't like over in States, even though you've been wrestling for 10 years or five years or however long it's been, you, you wrestle over in the States, you go into a WWE locker room after wrestling over in the States, they're not going to treat you like one of the boys until you earn it, you know? And uh, over in Japan, it's the opposite. You're already one of the boys, you know? So, you know, I'm backstage, you know, I'm talking with great Muda. I mean, yeah, I'm almost marking out myself because these guys are incredible, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I got opportunities to wrestle all these guys. You know, I wrestled Quada, which was great. And I like it stiff anyway because I, I was brought up in the power plant with Sarge, you know, and he, you know, we just all trained stiff because that's what we were used to. And that's exactly the style you need to wrestle in Japan because if these guys hit you and they, they hurt you, you got to fight back or you'll never go over there again. So, you know, I'd fight back with these guys. I got respect from these guys. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pushover. I can take some physical pain. So, uh, you know, these guys knew that I wasn't just going to cry about them hitting me. I'd hit them back, and, you know, I, I got along with all these guys, and I got their respect the first time I was there. So, uh, you know, that meant a lot to me, you know, getting respect to Great Muda and Kawada. And I, I wrestled with a guy named Kea over there, uh, Tio Kea. I can't remember how you pronounce his name. But that guy was incredible, man. He was lived in Hawaii, but he'd been trained over there in the dojo. And uh, he was unbelievable, man. He treated me like, you know – I was his brother, man. So all those guys over there were great, and I love working with all those guys. That's incredible. What what listeners, you know, there's all there's the mystique of the great Muta and stuff, but getting in there with him. What did you take away after having the matches with uh, Muta? You know, oh, getting, man, in, getting just, in there with a legend. Yeah, just just like before though, that, that stuff happened so fast. Like, you know, all I'm thinking is when they, they I remember I went to the arena and Kaya told me, he goes, "Hey, man, you're working to and uh, Umaga was there as well." Uh, so him and I tagged up a lot. Uh, me and Kea and Umaga would tag up a lot and wrestle like Kawada and these guys. So uh, I remember they told me they're like, "Hey man, you're gonna you're wrestling Muda tonight." And I was like, "I was like, holy shit! Like I am for real." I didn't believe him. And uh, so then I go back and look at the board, and 
you know, my name's in Japanese, but I, I know what it, I can recognize it because I've seen it, you know. So, and I see him, me and him, and I was like, holy shit, they, they weren't lying. So I go back to, and this, this is an incredible story. This is something that would never happen in the States. So I go back to the locker room. I'm like, you know, I'm, when you're over there in Japan, you know, you're like, ah, Imuda, yes, you know. And, you know, like you almost ask his permission to sit down and talk with him. So you're like, ah, can, may I sit? You know, he's like, ah, yes, please. They call me Funkster. So Muda spoke English, but it wasn't great. And he'd be like, yes, Funkster, have a seat, you know. And so I'm like, yes. I said, uh, I was like, uh, Funkster, wrestle Muda tonight. And he's like, ah, yes, yes. He's like, listen, Funkster. He goes, Muda is pretty much saying he's an established wrestler. He's telling me, this is your first tour of Japan. Nobody know Funkster. Muda helped Funkster get over. You know, and he's, I mean, you know, and I'm sitting there going, man, this is unbelievable. You know, and then he's like, he goes, yes, you, Funkster, you do all special moves in Muda. Muda do nothing. And I was like, what the? F I was like, this is, it's unheard of. I was like, listen, you, you want me, can we do this, this, this? He's like, ah, yes. Yes, Funkster, great. You, you get over. You get over. Muda get you over. And uh, I try to explain this to people, man. That'd be the equivalent of me coming over here to the States, sitting down with Hulk Hogan. That would never happen with none of these top guys at that time in WWE. It, that wouldn't happen with anybody. I don't care what you say. I, unless, the, unless Vince McMahon physically come down here and said, look, this is what you're doing, and that's the way it is, there is no damn way you'd sit down in any locker room in the States and go to their top guy and him tell you, I'm getting you over, I don't want to do anything. That's why I love Japan. They get it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Two different ways. Totally. Did you get to Ribera Steakhouse, Alan? While you were over there. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We, yeah we I, went have to... To I have to ask. Oh, yeah. I, I got a good story for that. Like, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. At that time, I was probably 220. Uh, so I, I'm sitting down there with Umaga, which he's a big dude. I mean, this dude's 400 pounds, you know what I mean? If, if not more. Uh, so we go in there, and he's thinking, oh, yeah. He goes, like, he wanted to challenge me to an eating contest. Well, I'm, I'm all in because I, I can eat. So, you know, we sit down, we get a steak. And let me tell you about steak in Japan. It's not cheap. You go to Ribera Steakhouse and you're eating three steaks, you better have, you better have at least $700 in your pocket. You know what I mean? Well, the office is paying for our dinner. And uh, me, I'm kind of, I'm still frugal at this point. I'm, I'm trying to save my money. When I go to Japan, I'm, I'm not there to spend money. I'm there to make money to take home to the States. So I, I would take like a suitcase full of canned tuna fish, I take a suitcase full of like protein bars and protein powder, and I didn't really spend a lot of money overseas because I was trying to save my money. Uh, so when I went to dinner and the office was paying for it, man, guess what? I'm eating because I'm eating crap out of my bag the rest of the time. You know what I mean? So we go to Ribera's and I'm hungry. So he he was kind of wanting to challenge me Umaga to like an eating contest. So we'd get a steak, you'd get a bowl of rice, and you get a salad. So I ate my steak, my salad, and my rice, and uh, I'm still hungry. I'm, I'm like, that was a warm-up. So uh, I was like, you ready for another one? And he's like, damn, you already ate that? So he eats his. We order another one. And let me remind you that the office is paying for this. I'm not paying for it. That's the only reason I'm ordering another steak. <laughs> so I order another steak. He orders another one. I eat mine. I eat the rice. I eat the salad. Uh, I'm ready to get another one. He's he's barely finished up the second one. And he's like, he's like, dude, you're gonna get another one. So I told the wait the waiter I learned how to speak a little bit of you know Japanese while I was there because I you know 
uh, Kaya helped me because I want when I'm at a restaurant, I want to know what I'm I'm getting. So uh, I told the waiter "Muy Kai," which means one more, and the guy from the office kind of looks over at me and he's like, "So he stands up." So the, I was like, "Yeah, one more, one more, Muy Kai." So he, he goes to get me another steak and stuff. So Magas barely finishes his second steak. They bring me my third one. The guy from the office, he walks over to me and goes, Ah, Funkster, office stay, you way too expensive. No more. So, you know, I, after my third steak, I couldn't order anymore. But needless to say, I beat Omaga in the eating contest. That's good going, Alan. That's good going, <laughs> doing that, man. And, and I got my free Ribera jacket. Oh, yeah, that is absolutely, you've got off the, the heirloom. of the. I was going to ask about the jacket. That's like, well, you know, I, I got the jacket, but I let a buddy of mine, which I wrestle with in Lucha Libre USA, borrow it for what I, I can't even remember what reason. I still haven't got it back yet. So thanks for bringing up that story. And I got I to gotta call this guy and get my Ribera jacket back. Because uh, if people don't know Ribera, they got, it's a world-famous state restaurant where all the wrestlers in Japan, they go there and they get their picture on the wall and they take pictures with you and they put your picture on the wall. So they took a picture with me and my Ribera jacket. So I'm hoping I'm on the wall up there somewhere. I hope, I hope you are too. Yeah, and you've got to get that jacket back as well. Yeah, that's like, you yeah, know. I'll get the jacket back and shoot you an uh, uh, email with me with the jacket. <laughs> How was, how was your time in TNA? You're in TNA. You were part of Rainbow Express with Lenny Lane. Obviously, I remember Lenny Lane in WCW previous to that. So, yeah, how, how was TNA? How was your experiences there? Yeah, yeah, Lenny, man. Lenny's a great guy. I'm still good friends with Lenny. Uh, working with Lenny, man, you can't work with much better than Lenny, man, because he, he, he gets it. He, he wants to get over. He wants to get your opponent over. And uh, him and I got along real well when it came to that. And uh, just, just, you know, just overall good dude. So we get to TNA, and we're doing their inaugural show in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, which was great. It was set up great. They had a big arena over there. Uh, you know, they had, uh, like, country star Toby Keith on the show. They had some NASCAR guys there, Sterling Marlin. You know, they, they, they had a bunch of NWA legends uh, that they introduced. Uh, you know, we had all kinds of good guys over there. We had Ricky Steamboat. Uh, we had the, uh, the Road Dog and his dad, the, the Armstrongs, Bob Armstrong, Bullet Bob. He, they were the agents. Uh, so they, they, the show was awesome. So they, me and Lenny go into our, the first meeting we have when we get there. You know, they're, they're telling us, they're promising us the world. You know, you, we're going to be their tag team champions. They're going to, everything about the tag team they have established is going to be around me and Lenny Lane. So we're going to be their top tag team in, in the company. They already got the belts on us, but we haven't won them yet. You know, they're, they're telling us all this stuff. We're in there taking promo pictures. Uh, you know, we're doing all this stuff. Me and Lenny's taking shit, man. We're getting treated like royalty now. We're going to be tag team champs, you know. But then again, in the wrestling business, I never believe nothing until it happens. So, which leads us to the first match we have. Now, I don't have any problem putting anybody over. Neither does Lenny, which that's what, you know, makes a good worker is, you know, not arguing about everything that's going on. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a work. If you're going to get beat, you're going to get beat. It's a work, you know. It's Who cares? Uh, so they, they tell us we're going to be wrestling James Storm and Chris uh, Harris, which were America's Most Wanted in TNA. They became to be one of the best tag teams in TNA. So uh, we're, we're like, yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll put them over. They're like, well, yeah, just do this for us because these are young kids. We're trying to get them established. You know, we want them to go over. The whole deal of the match was they were outside getting out of their car 
with they had their jeans and t-shirts on and whatever and they had their bags with them so they and we and me and lenny had joel gertner with us so we're out in the ring joel's cutting his little promo his little uh you know the spiel he does with his rhymes and stuff which joel's great uh so uh we're out in the ring and then all of a sudden they're like you know we're waiting on our opponent and then they show these guys running from their car with their bags taking their shirts off on the way to the ring so they wrestle us in jeans <clears throat> excuse me uh so we have the match we put them over uh which was no problem i had no problem with it all uh wasn't upset a bit about it. Uh, so then, uh, you know, a couple shows later, the same thing. You know, and then they're going to have a tag team tournament for the belts. So then they have us going over Marcus Bagwell. And people got a nickname for that guy, but I'm not sure what it is. I just know him as Marcus Bagwell. And uh, uh, Apollo from Puerto Rico, which is a great guy. Huge guy, looks great, good worker, stiff as hell. He'll chop you and break your damn chest in half. So uh, we're wrestling Apollo and Marcus Bagwell uh, in the first round of the tag team tournament to win the belts. So, of course, we're going over because we're going to be the champs, right? So we, we go over that match, and then we go to wrestle, uh, I believe it was a different night. They had the tag team turn, I think, spread out throughout a couple weeks. So then the next match we're going to wrestle is, I, I can't even remember who it is we go over. So the final match we get to, you know, to win the belts, like we were promised, we wrestle AJ Styles and Jerry Lynn, which isn't even a tag team. So this is kind of reminding me of the WCW days where these guys aren't even a tag team, and they just threw them together just because they're AJ Styles and Jerry Lynn. And this was kind of even before AJ Styles was even established as anybody. Nobody really knew him at this time. But he was, they knew him around the independent world. He was a great, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying nothing bad about AJ. I love AJ to death. I've worked him. You know, and he's, he's a good talent, and he deserves everything he's got. But they just threw this tag team together. It's kind of reminded me of WCW now. And then they tell them, they tell us if they're going over. And me and Lenny, and we still didn't bitch. We're, you know, we're professionals. We're just thinking, what in the hell is going on? We're, we're actually a tag team, a, a, an actual tag team. And they just throw these two guys together and they're going to put the belts on them after they promised us 150 times that we're going to be the champions. So me and Lenny were like, yeah, we knew it. We knew it. We just, we, we, I don't know what it was. We just, we're like, you know, it is what it is, whatever. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to get a paycheck. We're doing, we're, you know, we're doing, we're told. And, uh, yeah. So of course we're not the tag team champs. They put them on AJ Styles and Jerry Lynn. So, you know, and then we never did become tag team champions. They uh, eventually pushed Lenny out the door and then eventually pushed me out the door. And then I get hurt in Finland. That's another story. Yeah. So then TNA didn't want to use me anymore because I was hurt. Did you so that's basically on, how I got out of did you go? What's, so I'm you, sorry. So you went on to the independence once being let go from TNA. Well, I was still working in Japan at that time, uh, here and there, uh, whenever I wasn't busy in the States, uh, which was a good thing. So I'm still wrestling in Japan. I get a call from Mike Sanders, says, hey, I got this guy that wants to book you in uh, Europe, in uh, Finland. So I said, well, what's he going to pay or whatever? So Mike says, he's going to pay you this amount of money. And we're only supposed to be there one day. We're flying in, doing the show, and then we're flying right back out the next day. So I'm thinking, that's a pretty good payday, man, for one day at work. I'll, yeah, I'm in. So, you know, and then uh, we get over there. You know, we go to dinner. We have a good time. Uh, go out and have a couple drinks. Go back to the hotel. Get up next day. We go to the arena, uh, and then uh, 
that I find out me and Mike are going to be a tag team. We're wrestling uh, Elix Skipper and Sonny Siaki, guys from the power plant, guys we're familiar with. At this time, Sonny was pretty well established on TNA at this point, from what I remember. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Sonny's telling me he's been doing this uh, split leg moonsault off the top rope. And, and people ask me, why did you let Sonny do a split leg moonsault? I said, because I came up in a business with Sonny. He told me he could do it. Why would I think otherwise? Him and I are good friends. It ain't like we don't like each other. You know, we talk all the time on the phone. We train together. You know, he tells me he can do a split leg moonsault. I believe him. He said he'd been doing it on TV. I hadn't really been watching TNA at that point. But, yeah, so that's how we do – you know, we, we get in the match. We're doing the match. He does a split leg moonsault, over-rotates, hits me in the face so hard it, it knocked my eyeball out of the socket. My nose was rearranged over in the left side of my face. I broke my orbital socket. My eye popped out of my head. I broke both my eardrums. I had a skull fracture, a broken jaw, and a broken nose. So, and I'm bleeding, pouring blood out of my ears. Ask anybody, if you know anybody in the medical field, ask them how bad it is when you're bleeding out of your ears. It's bad. So, I'm, I'm pouring blood out of my ears. My eyeball's hanging on my cheek. You know, my nose is over here. My jaw's broke. I got a skull fracture. I'm a mess. I'm back, you know, in the back. They're trying to put blood in me, you know, trying to figure out what the hell's going on before I die. And it, it was bad. But I, I do want to say a shout-out to uh, Kid Cash, David Kid Cash. He was in the back with me at that time. If it wasn't for him, I might, I might have died. He sat there, and he talked me through it, and he encouraged me, and which at the time, man, I didn't realize it, but it, he, he helped me out so much because I was on the brink of passing out. I was losing so much blood. And he, you know, he basically sat there and held my hand, and uh, he was a good friend that day, man. I'll never forget that. And the last time I spoke with David, uh, we did an independent show together, man. I hugged him, told him I loved him, and told him he, he, he didn't know what that, that meant to me at the time because uh, he, he pretty much saved my life. So uh, they take me to the hospital. Mike, Mike Sanders jumps in the ambulance with me. We go to the hospital. Uh, then... Uh, you know, I'm in a foreign land, dude. I, I can't see nothing really. My eyes are blurry. I'm bleeding out of my ears. I'm on the brink of dying. I feel like I'm going to pass out. Uh, you know, I get to the hospital. I kind of remember most of it, but there's parts that fade in and out because I was just trying to stay conscious. Uh, so then uh, I remember Mike leaves. I go in his room, and like I said, I really can't see anything. I asked him to give me a mirror because I wanted to see my face, and they said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to show your face. They probably thought that would put me in more shock. Because I look like the elephant, man. I mean, my face was rearranged. So, uh, so I remember Mike, at that point, he walks in the room, and he's real quiet, and he's kind of weird. And uh, he's like, hey, man, you know, and he, he really don't know what to say. And uh, so I'm like, hey, man, you know, he's like, I think you're going to get surgery. You're going to be good, man. But he was just weird. He was real quiet. And, uh, and if anybody knows Mike Sanders, they know he's not quiet ever. So uh, flash. I was over there for three weeks in the hospital. I had surgery. This was a Saturday night. They couldn't do surgery on me till Wednesday because I had air built up on my brain, and they couldn't give me anesthesia because they said it would probably have killed me. So they had to wait till the swelling went down and the air got off my brain. So uh, I go to surgery Wednesday. I'm in the hospital for like three weeks. So I'm, I'm in the hospital. I'm in the hospital. I'm in the hospital. Can't speak Finnish. Can't eat nothing. Losing weight. Can't shave. I'm used to shaving my body. I got hair growing everywhere. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wreck. But I will say this, they have the most beautiful damn nurses in Helsinki, Finland. If you ever get hurt, go to Helsinki, Finland to go to the hospital. <laughs> you, 
you will not regret it. I'm having these beautiful blonde haired 21 year old women give me a shower every day. And, uh, it, it was, it was awesome. That, that was the best part of my trip was the getting showered by the nurses. <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, so flash forward, I go, I go, I, they put me in a hotel for a couple of days because, uh, I can't, I still can't fly at this point. I got it. I still got kind of air on my brain. My eardrums are still, I can't really hear too good. I can't see nothing. Uh, I'm a miserable wreck in the hotel for two days because uh, I was addicted to morphine at this point. Uh, I was on morphine every day. They took me off cold turkey. I'm in the hotel laying in the floor crawling around going nuts because I can't see nothing. I can't hear nothing. I'm hungry. I can't eat because my jaw's wired. You know, it, it was a damn mess. So I, I just want to get the hell out of there. I want to get home. I want to get the hell out of there. It's been the, mo the worst experience of my lifetime. I almost died. So, uh, you know, so I finally get on airplane. I get on airplane. I actually had a shirt on just like this. I like these V-neck T-shirts. So I'm wearing a white T-shirt. I get on an airplane in Helsinki, Finland to go to Paris and then to get on a connector. I got to get on a connector now with, you know, in this kind of shape, trying to find, can't, still can't see. I need people to direct me to the airport and try to figure out where I'm going. I got nobody helping me. And the reason I don't have anybody help me is because the guy that took me to the airport, the guy that prom the promoted the show, stiffed me on my money. Didn't even pay me the money for the show. After this, after all this horse shit, the guy didn't even pay me the money. If he's listening, his name's Patrick, which he had called me since and told me he was going to send me the money, but never did. So the, the guy, you know, I, I really wanted to beat the shit out of the guy. He drops me out of the airport and says, hey, I don't have your money. And I'm like, what do you mean? I said, go to the ATM and get my money. He's like, no, I don't have it. I'm out of money. And I said, dude, after all this shit, you ain't got my money. I said, that's some horror. I said, he goes, well, let me walk you to the, I said, dude, here, here's what we're going to do. You're going to, I'm going to get out of your car. And you're going to get back in the car and you're going to go somewhere and you're going to get the hell away from me before I kill you right here in this fucking parking lot. I said, I, if you don't have my money, I said, get the fuck away from me. I said, I'm at the breaking point. I said, I went through three weeks of hell and you can't even fucking pay me for doing a show for you. I said, I will fucking kill you. I will beat your face against the curb. I said, get the fuck out of here. So he, he actually goes and parks, and he's trying to follow me to the airport. I, keep, I look back at him. I said, if you do not get the fuck away from me, I'm, I will beat you to within an inch of your fucking life. That's how mad I was. So he finally leaves. I get, you know, I get people helping me through the airport to my flight and stuff. So I get on this airplane. Instantly, as soon as we get up to however many feet, my ears start bleeding were looking at me like this guy's frankenstein like what the hell is going on uh so i finally get to a point where i'm i, I calm myself down you know i'm just sitting there for a three-hour damn flight bleeding out of my ears ready to kill somebody because i just i'm so mad and frustrated with the whole situation uh so i i get back i get to the airport now i'm, I'm walking through the airport i got blood all over my shirt my neck i don't even care i can't really see that much anyway i don't give a shit i, I want to get home I mean, I don't know if you can imagine seeing a guy, you know, 220 pounds, walking through the airport with blood all over his neck, his shirt, pouring out of his ears. No, nobody's helping me. No one's saying nothing. Like, I couldn't believe, like, nobody even want to come over there and say, hey, let me get you a, a napkin. You know, I'm walking through the airport like the damn Frankenstein, like the elephant boy. People were staring at me with blood dripping down my face. And uh, so I finally get on the airplane to get back to – now we're flying from Paris, France, to Atlanta, Georgia. Finally, I'm going to get home. You know, and that's not a, uh, an hour flight. That's, that's a good 11-hour flight. So I'm on this flight, and uh, I, I remember one of the 
guys give me a couple pain pills, which I had, which I was saving for the, the worst moment. So I'm thinking, I'm going to be on this 11-hour flight. I'm going to pop a couple pain pills, which I never took pain pills before, but I'm actually glad I had them at this point. So uh, I pop a couple pain pills. I'm sleeping. I probably slept for about a good four or five hours. So, you know, the flight's still going. So I remember I, I was – I pretty much really got on the plane. I, I put my seat back, and I'm laying back, and I'm sleeping probably a good four or five hours. Well, I had to get up and go to the bathroom. So, uh, so I get up. I go to the bathroom. Come back to my seat, and I go to recline my seat again. So I'm laying back in my seat. Well, this lady behind me starts kicking my seat. Like, my head's, like, bouncing like this. And I turn around. I stand up. I'm like, what in the fuck is she doing? Like, and then she sees my blood all over me. And I look at her, and I, her husband stands up like he's going to do something. I said, let me tell you something, pal. I said, if your wife fucking kicks my seat one more fucking time, I said, I'm going to bash your fucking heads together. And the stewardess didn't even say nothing. And, and this was even after 9-11, so, you know, I shouldn't have been saying this, but mm -hmm. fuck it, man. This lady was kicking my seat. I got major head trauma. I, I'm at the point of killing this guy and his wife right in front of their kid. So they just, the guy looks at me, and he's like, he sits back in the seat and his wife, and they don't fucking move the rest of the flight. They're scared shitless because I told them I was going to beat their heads together, and I would have done it too, not thinking nothing about it because I was – I wasn't in the mood to fucking get my seat kicked like that. You know what I mean? So uh, I sit back down, no, no incident the rest of the time. I get back. You know, my, my ex-wife picks me up at the airport. We, we go home. That The next night, I think I meet Mike Sanders. And, uh, and the reason I told you this whole story, because it's leading up to what Mike Sanders is about to tell me right now. So I meet Mike Sanders in a Mexican restaurant up by the house in, uh, in Georgia where, where we live. And uh, so we're sitting there talking, and he said, let me tell you something, Alan. He goes, well, do, you, do you know what that doctor told me when I came in the room that night? And I said, no, what did he tell you? He, he said, the reason I was so quiet, and I didn't really know what to say is, he said, that doctor told me that you were going to die 100% chance, and there was no way you were living through the night. So, yeah, he tells me that after I get home. And, uh, that, you know, that kind of – I was like, holy shit, he told you that? He's like, yeah, he told you that, or he told him that. So that, that's how bad the injury was. That's how, thank you for sharing that story, Alan. You're personal, that's a personal story right there. How long, yeah, yeah. How long was it for recuperation, man, uh, off, it, off the back of it? It, it? it was about a year, about a year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for a while, I mean, you know, my, my jaw's wired shut. I've had, I was going back and forth up to Nashville because, uh, I had an apartment in Nashville because my wife was a nurse in Nashville. We had a house in Georgia. So I, I, she actually drove me up to Tennessee, uh, Nashville, where we had an apartment. Uh, and then I had, uh, she had really great doctors around her because she, you know, she was a nurse and she knew a lot of good people up there. So I, I met this lady that did eye surgeries. I had four surgeries on my right eye because uh, my eyes wouldn't close. I had no control over my face. I couldn't even drink anything because all the nerves in my face were shot. Like my mouth was just, you know, it was drooping. Like I had, you know, I guess Bell's palsy, they cause it where you, where you get like paralysis. It was kind of sort of like that. Uh, you know, I couldn't, I had to, I had to buy a sippy cup that little kids would use to drink out of, but I actually had to hold my bottom lip and put the cup up to my lip because if I didn't, my lip would just, and I couldn't have anything in my mouth. So, it was about nine months when I started getting really good and I started seeing better. Uh, I really couldn't drive. Uh, I had to have people drive me everywhere. Uh, 
that I had family come down from Ohio and pick me up in Nashville because I, I didn't want to fly. After the experience I had coming home from overseas, there's no way I was getting back on an airplane right now. Uh, so then I had uh, my brother-in-law came to Nashville and picked me up, took me up to Ohio to see my mom and dad because they were both going through cancer, so they really couldn't fly or they couldn't, they couldn't come over to Finland at the time because they were both going through chemotherapy and they weren't healthy enough to fly. So, uh, you know, so I wanted to go see my family. So he come and got me. I was, you know, visit my family. Uh, then I, I got somebody to, uh, drive me back. My dad drove me back down to Tennessee. Uh, then I had uh, a friend of mine drive me back down to Atlanta, which brings me to about nine months in, you know, to my recovery. Uh, so then I started going to the gym again, uh, training, you know, from square one back in the gym. I, I was like, holy crap. Like I, I started all over. So I started gaining weight a little bit. I, I, I lost a lot of weight, you know, a lot of muscle. Uh, so I started training really hard again. Uh, come about about 12 months to the day, uh, I get a call from all Japan wanting me to work again. So I was like, yeah, hell yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, because at this point I'm not making any money. You know, I'm struggling paying my house payment. You know, my wife's working, but we're going through a divorce at this time, which made it even worse. Uh, so I got to go through a divorce. My dog just died. My mom and dad's got cancer. You know, I'm going through all this stuff. So then when all Japan called me and wants me to work again, I'm thinking, man, this is, you know, hell, yeah, thank you. So, uh, start going back over to Japan and wrestling a little bit, uh, which was good. But shortly after that, you know, they stopped using me because my buddy Jerry, which got me, which helped me get over there, Jerry too. He, uh, he actually died over there. One of the tours. Uh, he was uh, snorting Oxycontins and, you know, died in his hotel room the last day of the tour. And uh, so, yeah. So then after that, I really didn't go to Japan much. They, you know, they, they quit using me and, you know, they, then I was doing TNA only at that point and some WWE stuff overseas in Australia. Thank you for, thank you for sharing all that, man. I appreciate you speaking at length about that. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, the, you know, it just shows, the dangers getting in that ring, you know, young guys now wanting to learn. I think they'll take a lot. They'll take they'll take a lot away from that story, man. I'm just glad you lived lived through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you never you never think anything like that's gonna happen. I mean, you know, there's there's risk. That's part of the wrestling business. Yeah. But uh, I mean, really that. And I talked to Shane Douglas because Shane Douglas was there, and I I actually went to a TNA show when I was in Nashville. Uh, I had a buddy pick me up there, and he took me to the show just because I wanted to see some of the boys and stuff, you know. So Shane Douglas sees me. He's like, holy crap. He said, that is the worst wrestling injury I've ever seen in my life. He goes, you know, he gives me a big hug. And, of course, I see Kid Cash there. And uh, I, I really didn't, at that point, didn't realize the, the impact that Kid Cash had made on me when I was hurt, when I told you the story. Uh, so, I, you know, I thanked him or whatever. But then it wasn't until I saw him, like, about a year ago when I really told him how I felt about that situation. But, uh, yeah, he was there, and then, yeah, they were like, holy shit, bro, that was the worst wrestling action we ever seen. We we couldn't believe it. So, you know, it, it, it was uh, it, it was crazy, man. I'd like to ask you, as we're closing out now, about Lucha Libre USA and your run, your run there. How was that? Yeah, man, I tell you what, Lucha Libre USA could have been something great. We had – that locker room had camaraderie like I've never seen before. Even the Mexican guys, the first day we met these guys, you know, we're, we fly out to L.A., we're doing a show in a casino out there in Palm Springs. Uh, you know, we, we're outside waiting on the, you know, the bus drivers got the bus there. We're waiting on everybody because everybody's flying from Mexico, from, you know, from all over the country. So, you know, so me and uh, John Huger, which is Johnny the Bull from WCW, 
in, in WWE. He's in the FBI. Uh, you got RJ Brewer, which was uh, – he's a great independent worker and did Lucha Libre. Uh, he, he was the main heel in Lucha Libre. <clears throat> you got Lismark Jr. You got uh, Charlie Manson from – you got all these guys that are legends in Mexico. You got all these minis, they call them, like the midgets, uh, uh, El Dorado, Mascara Dorado, whatever, which is a legend in Mexico. You got uh, La Parca. You got all these guys, man. And uh, I remember as soon as we got on the bus, they, they did this thing on the bus where everybody was on the bus, and then when someone come on the bus, they'd be all like – it was like they were running down, or walking down a runway in a modeling show, and we'd all be chatting. Whatever it was in Mexican, I can't remember. And, I mean, everybody just got along so good. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark, Mark Jindrak as well. He was Marco Corleone in Mexico. He was a huge superstar in Mexico. So, yeah, we, and uh, I had uh, – uh, her, her name was Tigressa Caliente, which was a uh, rock con in TNA. She was, she was kind of like my tag team valet partner, uh, which we got along great. We had some good stuff. So, yeah, instantly everybody got along. It, it was a great locker room. Uh, you know, there wasn't none of this WCW stuff where one guy had his locker room. You know, you couldn't go here. And everybody was a tight-knit group in that. And uh, they had TV on MTV3 and MTV2. And uh, we started doing some good shows, man. We, and then they had a uh, – uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. They had a. Uh, that's where our main. Uh, we filmed the shows at. So uh, they were. We were working with Hard Rock Cafe. We did to film the shows there. Uh, it was a great little venue. It was. It was a stage uh, where you had to rent. You know, the fans in front of you and the stage behind you and stuff. Which I'm not a big fan of, but it kind of worked at the time for that show for whatever reason. Uh, you know, plus they they had great production. Uh, they didn't spare any cost on the production and stuff. Uh, you know, they had a good money guy behind them that was backing them. And then they, they, they had, you know, they had Billy Gunn come on that show. They had uh, Shane Helms, a hurricane, and a couple other people from WWE. You know, uh, ODB did the show one night. Uh, and we had Revy Sky, which uh, she was, uh, I don't really think she was working. I think she was like a commentator, which she's married to Matt Hardy. Yep. Uh, so she was a great addition to the team. Everybody got along great, man. So actually, Rebbe used to help me put on – I used to wear, like, pink uh, eyelashes, fake eyelashes. So she'd always help me glue them on my eyelashes because I could never do it. And uh, so, yeah, we, we, you know, I wrestled uh, – the Blue Demon wrestled there, and that guy's like a – he's like the Muda. He's the Muda of Mexico. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, man, it, it was incredible. It was a great locker room. Everybody got along good, and they had the money. It was just – they had no idea what they were doing in the wrestling business, really. They had the money, you know, they had the backing, they had the TV. They just didn't have the wherewithal to, to run a wrestling company is, is the bottom line, I, I believe. Do you watch any current wrestling? I ask you guys. I, I, I always ask. I always ask this one. Yeah, and this is almost embarrassing. I really don't. Uh, I... It's not that I'm burnt out on the wrestling business. It's that, and I don't, by no means do I think I'm better than anybody, but I believe that I could have been a wrestling talent like Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit. Uh, I always, you know, I, I've wrestled Eddie Guerrero several times when I was in WWE uh, developmental. We did a lot of house shows together. Eddie always put me over. Uh, I always saw myself as a, a mixture between, and I always tell people this, Eddie Guerrero, uh, Benoit, which, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about Benoit just because of the situation, uh, which I always got along with Chris, and I never had nothing bad to say about him. He always treated me good. Uh, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, and Chris Jericho. I always I – I had that intensity, and Paul Warndorf a little bit. 
uh, I had that, you know, Benoit, Paul Orndorff. Uh, I, I think I could really turn up the intensity. Uh, I had a great body. You know, I prided myself on always eating good and staying in shape and being, you know, cardio shape. There was nobody I couldn't run with in the ring. Uh, I just think having given the chance to do Angry Allen and be like that type of wrestling character, I, I really think I could have went far. And when I see some of these guys that I used to wrestle with, not taking anything away from them, they deserve where they're at. I just believe I should be there as well. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's uh, offline by saying that. I just believed in my ability and I believe that, uh, you know, I, I could have been a, you know, a common household name being in the WWE. And uh, it's frustrating to me that I never got that opportunity. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I'd also, just before we go, I'd like to ask you, have you got any tips or advice for young budding guys that want to get into the wrestling business? Well, I tell you what, nowadays it's a little different. Like in the States now, the WWE owns everything. Uh, well, I mean, even if you're overseas, I, just get some independent work. Get right to where you know if you get an opportunity to go down to the WWE Performance Institute, you better be right by that point. Because uh, they're starting to pick up a little bit of stuff from the power plant from what I hear. Uh, you you got to go through some more rigorous stuff down there. So if you're not in shape to go down, if you get opportunity, which is hard to get in there, uh, do whatever you got to do, meet some people, make some phone calls, try to get in with the right people. It, it never hurts to kiss a little butt, you know what I mean? Uh, but, uh, but if you do get that opportunity to go to WWE Training Institute, I, I would say you better be in shape and you better know what you're doing when you get down there because you're probably not going to last too long in there. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's your one and only shot really – the way I, I I don't know how else you're going to get into wrestling anymore. TNA, I don't know how you really get in there. Uh, but if you get a shot to go to the WWE Institute, you better be ready. Great advice there, Alan. Thank you for that. I'd like you just as we before we go, I'd like you to plug your social media and then obviously plug Get Funked as well. Just to yeah, yeah. You, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, uh, Funk Allen. That's F U N K A L L A N. Uh, or I think you could just type in Alan Funk, it should pop up. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I interact with people on my social media. You send me a DM, I'll try to get to you. Uh, also, I got a podcast I started about six weeks ago. It's called Get Funked. It's a MWA podcast network. You can find us on Twitch. Uh, just type in MWA World. Uh, same with YouTube. You can go to YouTube.com, uh, uh, MWA World. Uh, you know, eventually once we get built up to where we want, we're going to get on, uh, you know, iTunes, uh, Spotify and all that good stuff. Absolutely. I look forward to your journey with this. As you yeah. Can. Also, uh, my show is live. Yeah. I'm doing a live show every Thursday night yeah. in the States. It's 7 p.m. <clears throat> Eastern time, Thursday nights, mm -hmm. live, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and I think we come up with what time is that in London? 12, 12 p.m. in the UK, Alan. At 12 a.m., okay, yeah. 12 a.m., I don't, I keep doing this, I keep getting it wrong, 12 a.m., <clears throat> midnight, midnight Friday in the UK, there you go, it, sorry. Yeah, because I, I, I do it with peers in Australia, and they're, yeah. I think, I believe they're 15 hours away. Uh, so for you, uh, for you, it's crazy, and it, and it's crazy their time difference even to here, I think he's about eight, nine, ten hours ahead of me, peers. Yeah, yeah, depending on where you're in Australia, it's yeah. good. 14, 15 hours ahead of the States. But, uh, I mean, the good thing about our podcast are you can subscribe to it on Twitch or, uh, you know, YouTube. You can watch it anytime you get a chance. So you, you don't have to watch it live. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it's a good option to have if you really want to. I've had some good guests, like I said, Molly Holly and stuff. And, uh, you know, 
getting some insight on people like that. You know, even for the new guys watching, you might, you know, you might hear something you want to hear and it'll help you out. Who knows? My guest all the way from Georgia by way of Ohio. It is yeah, baby. It is former WCW star, all Japan pro wrestling star, TNA star. You know him as Kiwi in WCW. Alan Funk, the host of NWA Network's Get Funk, every Thursday at 7pm Eastern Time in the USA. You get it midnight here in the UK on a Friday too. Thank you for coming awesome. on. Thank you for coming on Stu's Wrestling Podcast today, man. Yeah, man, I had fun. Thank you, buddy. A big thank you to Powered 4 TV for putting the episodes up on the on-demand service there. Big thank you to John Scott and Rich Crowhurst for all the support. Really appreciate it week in, week out. Nothing's ever a problem. Also, we're doing Power 4 TV Big Fight Weekly, the MMA and boxing show with my cousin, Rich and John. I've put on these first. It's been fantastic with that. Thank you to Chris Dutton again, as always, for the superb editing. I couldn't do this without him. And fantastic job once again. Thank you to Mike Angus for the intro, as always, to the show. You can find the Stu's Wrestling Podcast merch at WrestleMerchCentral.com. There is loads of stuff, lots of different items that you can get. Mugs, hats, face coverings, t-shirts, hoodies, even the new varsity jacket with embroidered Stu's Wrestling Podcast logo on it. Big thank you once again to Dean and the team for listing my products on there. Great work, great work. And we will see you soon for the next episode of Stu's Wrestling Podcast. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.